Welcome to Meltemi, the Pituleta Bagica podcast. Meltemi is a type of cold breeze in a summer's day, an unexpected yet very pleasant experience. Much like the wind, we want to explore the different directions our conversations will go. This podcast aims to be a breath of fresh air in a hot summer's day. We will be discussing all cultural forms from literature to poetry to philosophy to art in new and different ways. Further, like the magazine's motto, Art for Art's Sake, we are intent on showing you a new face to podcast. Cultural Obsessions is the first series we have launched, where we will be speaking to esteemed guests about the cultural figure, be it an artist, an author, a filmmaker, that means most to them. So without further ado, we welcome you to this series of conversations. Hi, my name is Eleonora, and today I'll be speaking with Facundo Rodriguez, esteemed member of the Picholeta Barca, who is co-head of the Paraphrasis column, and today he's come to enlighten us on his literary obsession. Jorge Luis Borges. So, dear Facundo, why don't you tell us a bit more? Hello, Eleonora. I'm really happy to join the podcast. So today I'm going to talk about Borges. So Borges is not only my favorite literary figure, but also one of the main figures in Argentinian, I would say Latin American, and also world literature in the 20th century. So Borges was born in the last year of the 19th century and was from Buenos Aires. He started writing from a very, very early age. His first published piece was a translation in a local uh, newspaper at the age of 10. He translated The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde. It's also one of my favorite short stories from Wilde. Then he, he left to Geneva and studied French, traveled to Spain, was part of the Spanish literary circles, and then went back to Argentina and started his main main production as a poet initially. Then around the 30s and the 40s, he was part of one of the main literary group in Buenos Aires, that was the Revista Sur, which was a, a literary publication in which he wrote with people like Bioy Casares or Silvino Campo as well. And during those years, as a, as a member of Revista Sur, he produced probably his best pieces that were Ficciones and El Aleph, that are two collections of short stories and some essays as well, El Nuevas Inquisiciones, which are probably the best that was produced in the 20th century, I think. So is it safe to say that you've read basically everything that he's written? So I'm happy to say that I haven't. Um, oh, really? <laughs> Yes, yes. But I think it was on purpose. So some of the short stories from some of these books, I chose not to read and some from some other publications as well, just because I want to still have some pieces to face for the first time. I mean, it was probably my happiest moment as a reader were facing and reading Borges for the first time. And I just don't want that to, to end. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely. And it's safe to say also that you have been really impacted by Borges, right? Yes, so not only literally impact, I mean, it was very <laughs> difficult for me to start writing without writing like Borges. Basically, he was in the, the center of my literary inspiration from my early years, uh, all my, my teenage years. But also he was the kind of gateway into philosophy. It was through his literature that I found philosophy not only interesting, but and mainly enjoyable and fun it was a place full of mysteries and incredible objects and thoughts and possibilities that is behind my my interest in philosophy nowadays 
Oh, well, I hope that through this, you'll, I'm sure, inspire a lot of other people to take the plunge and start reading Borges. If you're not convinced yet as to why you should read Borges, we will now proceed to analyse one of his short stories called Feeling in Death, which is in Spanish, Sentirse en Muerte, which comes from the collection of short stories El Idioma de los Argentinos from 1928. Don't worry, we'll write everything in the show notes so you'll be able to find this information. But if you wouldn't mind, Facundo, telling us a little bit more about the short story and, you know, what the listeners and future readers should expect. Yes, so this short story is a short story that is not very, I, I would say, not widely read because it's part of one of the also not very popular collections of prose and poetry that is El idioma de los argentinos, which is from the early years, so it's pre-1930s. But I think in this short story, you can find one of the central ideas about time that will accompany Borges through all his production, his literary production, philosophical production as well. So he himself saw this tale as kind of a central literary moment and philosophical moment for his writing career. And, and I think it's, it's also a really nice short story because it tells a story that I think a lot of the, of the readers will find common or, or at least that a lot of, of people would have lived at some point in their life, visiting some place or turning a corner or facing an old building and old scenery and having this feeling that he's going to describe that is the feeling of time travel, of not only being in a very old place, but actually being in the time when that place was built, when that place was vibrant and full of life. I completely agree. So through this process, Vakuna and I have discussed many, well, not that many, but like a fair few poems and short stories by Borges. And it's, well, aside from the fact that Facundo is basically an expert, it's the writing style. Borges was not someone I'd read before. And honestly, I would 100% recommend in this short story is, I think, really beautiful. So it's very exciting that we get to do this. So this short story is kind of a traveling through memory and through time in a way, but also whilst not traveling at all. Yes, exactly. So in this short story, Borges is taking one of his long walks around Buenos Aires and he travels towards the outskirts of Buenos Aires in these streets that at the beginning of the 20th century were easily uh, located in, in, in Buenos Aires were these streets that faded into the Pampa, into the into the, the countryside. You would see a lot of a long road and and and, and at the end just the horizon and, and, and fields and plains. And walking these streets randomly, he he has this feeling of not only walking into to a very tranquil and, 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 and peaceful environment, but at the same time kind of making some steps towards the beginning of, of the 19th century, that is more or less when these buildings were built. And he describes the atmosphere and he has this sudden thought that, well, maybe I am in the beginning of the 19th century. This doesn't feel like the beginning of the 19th century only. I am literally at the beginning of the 19th century. And he will then devote some pages in some other places in his work to, to actually justify this feeling and justify it philosophically. 
well, I couldn't definitely couldn't say it better than you, Facundo. So for, for you guys who may not have read this short story, we have individually picked a couple of passages that we thought were extremely beautiful, interesting, relevant. So we did this like without really talking to one another. But it's really interesting because Facundo chose the first sentence of the short story and I chose the second one. So maybe we can read it for the audience. I wish to record here an experience I had some nights ago, a trifling matter too evanescent and ecstatic to be called an adventure, too rational and sentimental to be called a thought. I am speaking of a scene and its word, a word I had said before but had not lived with total involvement until that night. Yes, so I chose the first sentence, so I guess I, I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose the first sentence because one of the key ways in which Borges signs his work is by these very special openings. And this one I find particularly valuable as, as in a way, is a very short and succinct definition of what reading Borges is and what his literature in some way is. He's saying that this experience he had was to evanescent and ecstatic to be an adventure but still to be rational and sentimental to be a thought. So he's placing this short story, this experience between kind of a mere thought, a mere argument, and, and an experience, an, an actual experience, an, an adventure, a, a full description of, a, of an interesting e event. It's some way in between a thought, uh, an argument, and, and an event, an, an incredible or extraordinary event. And some people have placed Borges' literature as being between an essay and, a, and short stories. So usually people talk about Borges creating this new genre that is speculative fiction, or some people call it metaphysical, fantastic literature, because you, you get the literary creation through an argument, through a philosophical thought, through, through philosophical speculation. So you will get in the style of writing something in between uh, an essay and, and a short story. And you get some essays that look like short stories, and then you get some, some short stories, a little bit like this one that could easily be, be an essay. I think that's really interesting. And I think like it kind of goes with the second sentence where like he puts his story between words and the actions and kind of emphasizes the relationship, but also like you know, the fact that like words can never fully describe our experience as human beings. And actually, I wanted to say, but I know that this is not right, but like we've spoken about the fact that this reminds me of Sartre, for example. But we've spoken previously about the fact that Sartre and the existentialists, you know, would use philosophy, literature as a means to develop philosophical thought. And Facundo rightly said that that's not what Borges is doing at all, is it? Yes, exactly. So this is why I find Borges so interesting and so valuable for literature is that he, I think, is probably the, if not the first one, the first one to do it so successfully, the first one to actually use philosophy as an object, as a, you know, as a primary matter from which to do, do literature. So it's, it's, it's using philosophy for the sake of literature and not the other way around. So Sartre is, I think, maybe the best example of someone using literature and, and literary production for the sake of philosophy. So, so you'll mm -hmm. get his, for example, his novels, as well as, as, as his theatre pieces as well. They have a, a clear philosophical motivation behind them. 
the same as Camus and, and, and some other existentialists, also phenomenologists of the 20th century, you get this. In, in Borges, yeah. you'll have just metaphysical meditations as a source of inspiration for deriving these extraordinary conclusions and, and possibilities and from there building these tales that are so amazing. But the philosophy is just an excuse. It's, it's doing literature for literature's sake. This is controversial, but I think that Borges is probably like more fun to read than Sartre ever has been for me. <laughs> Maybe Camus redeems himself a little bit more, but I find Sartre really kind of dry. He takes the fun away from literature and perhaps like Borges is kind of trying to give an ode for literature or emphasize it more. And another thing that this process does is in some way take the, the seriousness out of philosophy. He once said, I think, that... So he tried to take metaphysics seriously, but happiness got in, in, in his way. So, <laughs> so I think that is, is something that you'll find in, in Borges' literature, that is all the, the interesting stuff of philosophy, but in a very light and playful way. It's like a child playing around with philosophical concepts. And I think that is, that is fantastic because philosophy can be quite burdensome and tiring at times it's do you take Borges as like your escapism from your MPhil in philosophy <laughs> yes so unfortunately I mean <laughs> I'm I'm I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm always tempted to end my philosophical essays by this very boredom mechanism of saying well this is what I concluded but I know this is clearly false or or <laughs> these kind of things so yes I tried to use Borges to find the, the fun part of philosophy, of amaze myself with philosophy again and again. Realistically, you have to say something good about the thing that you're doing, otherwise it wouldn't really be worth doing it at all. Philosophy <laughs> is worth doing, it's fantastic, uh, but it's better <laughs> if you do it in the Borgian style. So Facundo wanted to talk about this very specific paragraph in the short story, which is incredible, and I'll read it for you guys and he'll tell you everything there is to know about it. Now I shall transcribe it thus, that pure representation of homogeneous facts, comnite, limpet wall, rural scent of honeysuckle, elemental clay, is not merely identical to the scene on that corner so many years ago. It is without similarities or repetitions, the same. If we can intuit that sameness, time is an illusion. The impartiality and inseparability of one moment of times apparent yesterday and another of times apparent today are enough to make it disintegrate. Very well read. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed hearing. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> so here is where Borges is unpacking this feeling he had when taking this walk around the outskirts of Buenos Aires and having this strong intuition that he was actually experiencing in the early 19th century, he puts the argument forward and just clearly and, and, and economically states it as a philosophical conclusion. So the idea behind it is that if you have this, this place, this moment, this perception of this space, which he described as calm light, limpid wall, rural scent of honeysuckle and, and, and elemental clay, this is exactly the same experience or perception that someone at the beginning of the 19th century would have had in the same place. So he's saying, actually, this is not only similar or retains some of the, the repetitions that the 
that this place would have had one century ago, it is actually exactly the same place. It's not just similar, it is the place. And so we are in the 19th century. This might seem quite quick as a conclusion. So that's why he gives that final argument in a very, very concise way. When he says, well, if we have the same moment, and we are saying that this moment is today, is now, but we think that there was an exactly similar moment one century ago, with the only difference that we are attaching to it, the characteristic of it having been a century ago, then we realize that we are actually not talking of two different moments in time, one today and one one century ago, but because the qualities and, and the characteristics of this moment are exactly the same, except for this time mark that we are touching to it, then what is really illusory is, is not our feeling that they are the same moment. It is our feeling that there was a today and a yesterday. It is our feeling that these are two moments in time. What we are proving, he thinks, is that this moment was exactly the same one as the moment that someone maybe lived one century ago when facing the same street in the crepuscular light of Buenos Aires. And so the problem with that, he thinks, is that if we have a moment that is recurrent, a moment that we thought happened and happened one century ago and also today, the problem with that is that then time is not linear. We, we don't have a kind of a series of moments that cannot in a way repeat themselves so we have a moment that has repeated itself so he thinks this is a way of disproving time of refuting time as he put it in in his essay so he thinks this is a refutation of time it's a refutation of the succession of time as well as the the ubiquity of time he thinks these type of experiences tell us something about the nature of time and basically what it tells us is that Time, as we think, it is, is an illusion. Actually, we are living moments that are not just similar to moments that other people lived, but are exactly the same ones. And so we are all the time moving in the apparently, or what we think of as, as a linear timeline. We are just jumping forward and backwards. It's really interesting because like, as you were speaking, as, as we read this um, part, I was thinking of like, you know, another moment in which kind of memory pervades through literature like this is with Proust's Madeleine. And like, obviously that's kind of, you know, the use of digression and the feeling of like how you remember a moment exactly in that kind of connection. It's also very like important literary style. But like, as you continued speaking, I was like, this is so different to how you can understand the Madeleine of Proust and in um, Swan's way. So it's kind of really, I find this really, really fascinating. And I can see how, you know, your philosophical output from it. <laughs> yes, so I think that there are similarities, but Borges is quite clear when discussing kind of the premises from which he's deriving this conclusion. And one of the interesting things about the way he's thinking about this is that he thinks about time in a way that also denies kind of the existence of the self. Yeah. of kind of having something behind our experiences that is kind of a, a constant nucleus that is doing the experiencing them. It's like denying the idea that it, there is someone having the perceptions. So in that sense, it's, it's different from Proust because in Proust, there is someone having this memory and yeah. it's it's very personal. 
it is a feeling that recalls kind of very clearly yeah. an early memory. And in that sense, Borges want to, to some extent, deny that in saying, basing his, his argument on Berkeleyan e idealism, saying, well, we are just a disaggregated, a fragmented set of perceptions, but there is no real link between this in something that we can call the I, you know, the Cartesian ego, something that is nucleating these perceptions. And this is something that Hume says uh, as well, thinking well, think of the mind as kind of a theater where perceptions happen. And he also says, well, we shouldn't take this too seriously because we are not even a theater. I mean, there are only perceptions. And in, in this sense, is, is that I think Borges takes memory to, to, to have only a, a secondary role. Also, memory is something that happens. Yeah. To some extent, it's like saying, well, there are, there are things happening, but there is no one to whom these are happening to, or there are memories, there is no one having these memories, or there are, there are perceptions, there is no one perceiving anything. And I think this is, is kind of Borges' idea behind this. So he's really influenced in this argument by uh, both by Berkeley and, and Leibniz. So he's kind of saying, well, I'm going to take this idealism, this idea that the things that are are only those that are perceived, kind of the only thing that there are are, are perceptions. Behind perceptions, there is, there is nothing really supporting the perception or causing them and saying, well, if that is the case, then two exactly similar perceptions are the same one, are exactly the same one. So this, this second principle that is Leibniz's principles of, of indiscernibles, that is, well, if you kind of have two objects and these two objects are exactly the same in that if you get one characteristic from one, on one object, you can find the same characteristic on the other one and vice versa, then you don't have two objects, you have just one. So this is basically Borges' idea. He starts with a person walking in Buenos Aires with a date, so the beginning of the 20th century, with a precise place that is Buenos Aires, and he ends up with just kind of a perception and no receptor and no time and no place. And it was just a, a walk. Yeah, and I guess this ties really well with the other thing you wanted to tell our listeners about the extract from New Refutation of Time, right? This ties in really perfectly as if we hadn't planned this at all. <laughs> exactly. Um, or as if Borges didn't plan, plan <laughs> this because he actually quotes his story in his essay and maybe versa to account that he didn't believe in time. So maybe he actually quoted his essay before writing it as well. Uh, uh, such a smart <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. So this is where Borges basically takes these ideas that you will find in, in this story we just discussed and in some other poems and texts, and just makes the, the philosophical argument. But what is interesting is that he starts by saying that he this is an argument that caused him some sleepless nights, but an argument that he ultimately believes is false. So that's how he starts the argument. And he says, basically, in this argument that he's going to refute time, and this is going to be a new refutation of time. This is clearly a joke. Um, <laughs> It's quite funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what he's trying to do is, is here showing how the fact that you can have two identical moments, apparently in different moments in time, proves actually that there isn't a succession of moments, but kind of just independent perceptions that cannot be located in kind of a single series of moments that spread towards the future and toward the past, because you will always have apparently two different moments of this series, but which are exactly the same. And he does that on two philosophical ideas, 
Berkeleyan idealism and Dionysus principle of identity of, of indiscernibles. Berkeley's idea was that what we perceive objects all the time. So we perceive, um, I don't know, now I'm perceiving my computer, a book by, by Borges that I have in front, a mug, <laughs> and we do perceive these objects. But he also says, well, what we really perceive are ideas of these objects. And so he goes on to claim, well, if what we perceive are objects and ideas, then objects are ideas. And so there is nothing else to an object than the idea of the object. So there is nothing beyond the colors, the shape that we perceive of a book to the book. So this is Berkeleyan idealism. And he thinks, well, if what there is is only what is perceived, then there is nothing behind the perception, actually, like time or, or like essential things. And right. And this is the central idea, which Borges really, really liked and goes back to it a lot. And he thinks, Borges thinks, that Berkeley was right in claiming this, in claiming that positing a, a kind of external reality was in some way like double counting. And then he also accepts Hume's conclusion that, well, if the, the only thing that there are are perceptions, then there is nothing outside the perception, kind of, of the perceiver, except if you are perceiving the, the perceiver. In that case, you would, but you wouldn't be perceiving the perceiver of the perception. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so Borges also felt that Hume was right in claiming there is no perceiver behind the perception. So there is no kind of personal identity as a continuous kind of identity through perceptions. But he thought, and he was really surprised by this, by, by the fact that neither Berkeley nor Hume denied time. So they denied space, they denied personal identity. But they didn't deny the essentiality, the materiality of time. They, they still seem to claim that there was some time outside the perceptions that ordered this perception in a timely manner. And Borges thinks this is a mistake. I mean, if the, if the only thing there are, are perceptions, then the time that is not within the perceptions. Obviously, we have perception of time, but there is no time outside it. So you couldn't claim that this perception happened at time t1 and that one at time t0. And this is the main idea behind his claim that, well, if you have a perception that is that feels like a perception of the 19th century, then surely it is one, because it's exactly the same perception that someone had when walking these streets a hundred years ago. So there is, there is no difference. You can take this perception and kind of list all the characteristics. You can get the one from the 19th century, list all the characteristics, and you can match them. And if you can match them, then you don't have two perceptions. You have exactly the same, same one. one. And yeah. if you have exactly the same one, then you don't have this linear timeline that we imagine when you think, we think about time. So this is his argument. And I think his argument, it is quite philosophically interesting, but also it's a great source of fantasies. Yeah. And this is what is important for Borges because he does all this, this philosophical thinking but at the end, he ends this short essay with what I think is probably one of the best paragraphs. Oh, go um, on then. <laughs> in his essays, I must say, I'm always tempted to, to end my own essays in this way. But <laughs> I, I, I couldn't do it. I don't think your tutors would appreciate that, to be honest. No, I would get a, a very bad mark. And, and at the same time, I wouldn't get uh, such a literally and poetically beautiful <laughs> paragraph either. <laughs> so this is how new refutation of time ends. Borges says, and yet, and yet, to deny temporal succession, to deny the self, 
to deny the astronomical universe appear to be acts of desperation and our secret consolations. Our destiny, unlike the hell of Swedenborg and the hell of Tibetan mythology, is not terrifying because it is unreal. It is terrifying because it is irreversible and iron-bound. Time is the substance of which I am made. Time is a river that sweeps me along, but I am the river. It is a tiger that mangles me, but I am the tiger. It is a fire that consumes me, but I am the fire. The world, unfortunately, is real. I, unfortunately, am Borges. Some mornings you wake up and you feel exactly that way, don't you? <sighs> you know, you know. <laughs> Obviously, there is something poetically valuable behind this. And it is true that this conclusion is basically denying the whole argument he put forward. Although yeah. he starts denying the argument in the introduction. But at the same time, it's true that he's describing, I think, or at least he's describing my own motivation in doing philosophy, but I think <laughs> he's, he's in some way describing a central motivation behind philosophical inquiry, that is this idea of thinking that there is more to the world than what there really is sometimes. Yeah. My motivation when doing philosophy, and I think from my discussions with other philosophy students and philosophers, is that a lot of people just feels there has to be something else to the world than what there, there is at face value. Yeah. And maybe that is true. Even if you get a kind of a step closer to that, that hidden part of the world. I, one that of my favorite part of the world. <laughs> that, that, is, that is a very, I'm going to use that now. That I'm taking, I must say, from <laughs> Chesterton. Chesterton says this in The Man Who Was Thursday. And he says that you sometimes get this feeling that the world is facing, kind of giving you its back. You see the tree, he says, and you have the feeling that the face of the tree is on the other side. Yeah. You see the clouds and, and you get this feeling that the clouds are facing the other side. And you get this feeling of, of the world facing the other way and, and you not being able to see the face of the world. And I think this is a little bit what Borges is saying. It's like we are speculating about mm -hmm. this other side, about these hidden mysteries of the world. But the world is, is really too simple. It's just too simple. And we're just, yeah. I mean, this is just our way of, of coping with this, the, the simple nature of, of our world. And I think there is some truth behind that. Yeah. I mean, that is why I think that philosophy and literature are equally valuable, because it's a, it's a different way of doing the same thing, yeah. kind of dealing with the, the simple nature of the world. I think that what's really interesting as well is that like with literature, you know, the type of analysis that you do is very different to what is displayed here by Borges. And I think that what's interesting about that is that like, I can see how he's probably changed the way that criticism works and what you say and what you don't say. And honestly, like Facundo, it's been, I know the audience will feel the same. Right? It's been amazing to hear you speak about this. You have such passion it's incredible. You can see it's definitely a cultural obsession. <laughs> yes, I I was really, really happy to, to go over this with, with you and, and the audience. I'm really obsessed with, <laughs> not only with Borges, but with his way of thinking about all this stuff. And I want to, all the time, see his, his literature as a sort of, of guidance yeah. through the, the philosophical complexities of my daily life. 
Yeah. Well, I've definitely, I've now bought the, the whole collection of short stories in Spanish. I'm going to try. You'll definitely be hearing more from me. <laughs> but I know that you've written an article for Paraphrasis on, well, mentioning Borges. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. But if you have anything to say about that, feel free to. Yes. Actually, I, I wrote about um, another Argentinian poet that is Evaristo Carriego, which is a um, lesser known poet and actually the people that know Evaristo Carriego is mainly because of the book uh, Borges dedicated to him and in in this short essay I wrote for La Picholeta Barca I discussed Borges reading of Carriego and, and to some extent I try to provide a, a different reading to Borges reading but I go back to one of a central idea we discussed today that is this idea Borges had of two perceptions being not only similar, but identical sometimes. Yeah. And especially when, when these are perception of abstract uh, entities. So kind of two people, there is a philosopher that says that two people solving a mathematical problem together are not just two minds thinking about the same thing. They are the same mind. And Borges thinks that to some extent, we will continue to live in this world. We will continue to live through the people that will experience the same thing as we did. And this is kind of a hope he has towards death and a hope he, in some sense, desired to Aristo Carrillo, who was so, so traumatized by the fact that he was terminally ill at the age of, in his early 20s. So he was really worried about leaving something behind, of perduring, in, enduring in, in the earth. And Borges writes this poem with this hope that we we will live on just in the in the perception of some other people that are will not be different perception, will be the same perception we had. But and he says we are just unnecessary mirrors. It's a perception that in some way is kind of uh, this platonic idea of having kind of the perceptions that then we as individuals, as kind of illusory individuals, we think we have kind of individually, but they are just exactly the same perceptions. And we will have them in the future, as we did in the past. And this is kind of his secular idea in the face of death, I think. Well, what a way to end. So before we do, I've asked Facundo to tell me three really random facts about Borges, because, you know, there are certain things that you can find in books, there are certain things you can find by reading him, but there's only a couple of things that you don't, won't know unless you are as passionate about Borges as Facundo. So what are they? So there is one that I think is really interesting. And, and what is interesting and what makes it not that common is the fact that he, he gestures at this, but never really says, I think is a Borges' favorite verse or favorite metaphor. So this is a verse that Borges says that he discovered in a history of Persian literature. Mm-hmm. And the verse in Spanish is Luna Espejo del Tiempo, which you could translate as moon mirror of time. But here time is obviously meant as time with a capital letter. So mirror of, of time with a capital letter would, <laughs> would be better. And I think Borges saw this as kind of the example of poetry, a very short and simple piece of poetry. And he did so because he thought that thinking of the moon as the representative of time and thinking of the moon as a mirror, which is not only 
one could say scientifically correct, taking into account that it is reflecting kind of light. But this idea of the moon is something that he thought was so fragile, so like white, and as a representative of eternity, of time, the moon being so old and also recurrent. And I think he went back to this metaphor as an instance of poetry. And there are some interviews and some conferences where he analyzes this very short verse as, a, as an instance of poetry. So this is what Borges thought was the definition of poetry, Luna, Espejo del Tiempo. That's lovely. Um, and the second interesting fact about Borges was some of the circumstances of his death. So he didn't die in Buenos Aires. Actually, he's not buried in Buenos Aires. He's in Geneva. Really? Um, yes, yes, he's, he's in Geneva. He lived in, in Geneva when he was younger. So he went back there and when he was old already. Apparently, he, before leaving to that last trip, he said, I really hope I die in this trip. And then we, we know through the, the tales of Bioy Casales that has a publication telling his life with, with Borges that he called some weeks before dying and, and just said that he was not going to come back from this trip. His friends didn't understand that he was saying that he was going to die. He also said that he told his, his translator that he knew that death was in his room. He thought it was um, a cold and strong objective presence. And he said, she's here. And that is all he, he said. And his translator understood and asked, how did she feel as a presence? And then he died, apparently praying be our father in Anglo-Saxon, Old English, English, French and Spanish until ah. he, he died. And those were almost all the languages he spoke uh, because he also spoke German that he learned from reading German and, as he said, guessing the meanings. So and that's how he, he died. Some people say that he called for a Catholic priest. Some other thing, there is a story that he actually asked for a Catholic and an Anglican priest because he also had some English family and that's how he died. I wonder how many people died like that because this seems very unique to character, intellectual character for sure. So before we let you go, I'd like to ask you, do you have a book that you've never managed to finish and that you've come back to time and time again, wishing that you'd actually managed to read it all? Yes, so I'm tempted to say Don Quixote right. Cervantes. So Don Quixote, I started reading and I read during my last years of secondary school when I came back from school. And it was just such a fun experience. And I have so many memories of reading this book that I think I am just too melancholic to go back and, and read it. And, and that's so on the one side, I do want to finish someday, but I'm just too scared. It's just something that I have so... <laughs> associated with my last years in, in Buenos Aires and, and just enjoying my, my reading so much that I'm just too, too melancholy to, to go back. I feel like you, you, you definitely have a very unique approach to reading. You're not reading all of Borges's books because you want to have the feeling of being able to read a new, like one of his books or one of his short stories fresh and like you don't want to finish a book because It'll make you too sad. I love this. This is great. This is a great attitude to reading. We should all mimic Barcunda. Yeah, you will end up not finishing books. <laughs> well, that there's there are worse things. But it's been honestly the most enlightening conversation, Barcundo. 
I am so happy that you were the first to come on to the podcast. And obviously, it won't be the last that people will hear from you. If they want to find you, you they can see what you've written on the Betrothal Barca and you'll, of course, come back. But that's it for now from us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you had a good time. If you'd like to hear more, note that we are on Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about La Pichueta Barca, have a look at our website, lapichuetabarca.com. L-A-P-I-C-C-I-O-L-E-T-T-A-B-A-R-C-A.com. And if you'd like to support us, we have a Patreon page. The intro music is from The Dreamers and the song is called Harbour Lights. You can find their latest album on Spotify and YouTube. Thanks again for listening.